This is The Guardian. Every Christmas, I have a tradition. I read a festive murder mystery. There is nothing better than settling down on the sofa with a box of chocolates and attempting to unpick a devious and grisly death alongside a witty maverick detective. So, if you're anything like me, you'll enjoy this year's Royal Institution Christmas Lectures by forensic anthropologist Professor Dame Sue Black. In her talks, she'll be delving into the scientific detective process used to identify the living and the dead. What are the secret clues hidden within our bodies that could help to solve even the most surprising crimes? What's it actually like to be a forensic scientist? And should you ever throw away someone else's finger? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay. And this is Science Weekly. Just before we get started, I wanted to flag that in this episode, we hear about having to identify children's bodies from their remains. So please do take care when listening. Nicola Davis, you're a Guardian science correspondent. And earlier this year, you sat down with Professor Dame or Dame Professor, I'm not sure which way round those two should go, Sue Black, a forensic anthropologist who's giving this year's Royal Institution Christmas lectures. But for those who don't know who she is, who's Sue Black? She is a bit of a legend, to be honest, and great fun to talk to as well. But she's a leading anatomist and forensic anthropologist. And so she's done some amazing work on identifying victims of disasters and also in the world of crime. So looking at identifying how your body can be used to tell one person apart from another person. And of course, that has an awful lot of implications in the nefarious world of murder and other nasty crimes that go on. Nicola, aside from giving lectures and writing books, her most recent being the very intriguingly titled Written in Bone, Hidden Stories and What We Leave Behind, what exactly does a forensic anthropologist do? What would their role be in a case? I think it can be quite it can be quite <laughs> grisly. I mean, she did talk about going out with a spade at one point. So I mean, I think there's quite a lot of hands-on work there. But also, I mean, talking of hands-on work, a lot of the work that Sue has done um, in sort of recent years, which is absolutely fascinating, is understanding how the uh, patterns of veins on our hands can tell people, it can be used to tell individuals apart. And are there different parts of our body that are kind of more crucial than others when it comes to identifying who we are. Yes, I mean, obviously there's DNA, which is the one which, you know, in the last what, 70 years or so, has obviously become hugely important. I mean, there's all sorts of complexities with with DNA as well. It's a really important tool, but finding DNA at a crime scene doesn't necessarily tell you who done it, as it were. But there's also other really important aspects of our anatomy. And this is something that I asked Sue about when I spoke to her to just talk a bit more about this. So when you're trying to work out the identity of, of somebody, if you've been given, you've recovered or, or, or been presented with bones or bone fragments, sort of what are the first questions that you 
you ask what what is it that that you are kind of thinking when you get presented with that sort of evidence well your first question is always is it human because often fragments of things sometimes even burnt plastic can look like they're bone and they're not how long has it been there because if it's found wearing a pair of roman hobnail boots chances are we're not going to get anybody responsible for the death and that sets the sort of parameter but what we want to be able to get across is the human body is really just layers upon layers of memory and and memory that have been laid down over time and sometimes if you've got the right stylus like a you know going across a record you can find a tune and we're looking for little snippets of a tune sometimes you find them sometimes you don't and if you were to sit down and you were to write all of the events that have happened to you and your body over time and you think about how would the body have responded to that because we are by and large just a set of biochemical reactions so for example if you currently live as i do in oxford but previously lived in lancaster i know that in my nails and in my hair and eventually in my bones that my signature is changing because we think we have a terribly cosmopolitan diet we really don't much of what we consume is still relatively local and you are what you eat so that you will see on my hair if i was to look at its elemental composition a change in the stable isotopes that tells you i've moved and that becomes really important. I might not be able to tell you with great precision where you've moved from and to, but it tells you something's changed in your diet. And it can tell you when you go from being an omnivore diet to a vegan diet for example, because the composition of what's creating your cells is changing. What it also does and this is the one that I love more than anything is that when you're developing as a fetus inside your mum there's a part of your inner ear that starts to develop and the only way that bone can develop is from the building blocks that your mother is eating at the time that she's pregnant with you that bit of bone called the otic capsule doesn't remodel because the inner ear is the same size when you're born as it is when you're an adult and you can't afford to let it remodel because it will interfere with your hearing so if we analyze the bone around the otic capsule at the base of your skull we can look at where your mother was in the world what she right, might have been right. eating whilst she was pregnant with you that's that whole concept of your mother is always inside your head <laughs> you can never, never get her out i mean it's kind of amazing to think about how people could identify your body if you know it ever came to that and the marks that you've left on yourself along the way now i mean this kind of expertise this kind of career sue has got to be a killer and that's pun intended dinner guest i mean i have to say the stories she came out with were amazing i mean my hair stood on end at times there was one that i wanted to ask her about where a small piece of skull was found in a washing machine and she was able to from that work out what happened to this individual i mean that that was a case where we had just a very small fragment of bone that was found inside the filter of a washing machine and it was about oh it was about a centimeter long and about half a centimeter wide and it was our job to identify what that fragment was 
And for us, it, it was only one thing it could ever be. And it's from the left-hand side of the, the temporal bone. And because of that, then with that bit of bone missing, the individual couldn't be alive. And we went back then to the, the husband, who was the, the alleged perpetrator. And he admitted at that point that he pushed his wife away and she'd apparently fallen down and hit her head and her head exploded, which is watching too much CSI because that's not what your head does. But I found myself in court with uh, Scotland's most infamous defence lawyer, who I utterly adore, except when I'm in court um, with him, because then he's awful. He interrogated me for about two hours. And I met up with him uh, a few months later. I went, oh, Donald, you were hard on me in there. And he says, I, he says, I like having you in court, he says. It's much more fun than the pathologists. I can trap them anytime. And you think, you know, I don't want to be his sport, you know, to be trapped. But, but that's, that's the way it is. Are there particular cases that have stuck with you? And are you, do you ever get surprised at what people can do to each other? Oh, totally, totally. The ones that really stick with us are the ones we don't solve. But if you look at the ones that stay with me, the one that I've talked about most often is the one associated with Kosovo and a rocket-propelled grenade, you know, took out the entire family, which were eight children and, and three adults. And I happened to be writing a book on the juvenile skeleton at the time. And so I felt I was in the right place at the right time because what the father wanted, he had survived and he'd managed to gather together all the pieces of his family that he could find, which is just, you know, almost, it's almost unimaginable, and bury them. He felt his God couldn't find each and every member of his family if they were all buried together. He needed to bury them separately. So he was looking for 11 body bags back, each with a bit of a named family member in it. So we were able to, to separate out the three adults, we were able to separate out all the children based on their age until we got to the two twin 14-year-old boys. And all we ever had of them was their shoulder region, nothing more than that. And I thought, how are we going to do this? They're twin boys. We can't separate them on DNA. And one of them um, was still attached to a Mickey Mouse vest. And I said to the police officer, go back and ask the father, was he aware of any of his children? Don't say the twin boys, any of his children were wearing a Mickey Mouse vest and he came back and he named one of the twins and he said he was absolutely obsessed with everything and anything to do with Mickey Mouse. He would have been wearing that. So we were able to tentatively say to him, we think this is this twin and this is the other. So being able to give that man back his entire family really did feel that you were in the right place at the right time. But then you get the ridiculous cases, like the one that's in Written in Bone, where a young man works for his father in a, a carpentry shop and uh, gets his finger caught in the circular saw and amputates his finger. So he heads off to, to hospital and they're not able to sew it back on for him. And he asks if he can keep it and they let him keep his finger. So he watched his mum make soup. So he decided he would boil it. So he boiled his finger to get it down to bone, kick you not. <laughs> He then uh, left it on the windowsill to dry and realised that there's still some fat coming out of it. And he knew that if his mum had fat on clothes, she put in a biological detergent. So he boiled it again with a biological detergent and left his finger bones to dry. And then he put them in a little glass container. And on Halloween and such occasions, he'd take them down to the pub and show, look, you know, here's my finger. 
For whatever reason, and reason obviously left him, he decided he would string them up and create a key ring and present it as a Valentine's Day gift to his girlfriend. Now, she was sufficiently horrified by this that she threw it away. And several months later, a man who's out walking with his dog finds the finger. So the police arrived to us with these finger bones on a key fob to say, please tell us this is just a Halloween joke. And we said, well, no, it's not a Halloween joke. It, it is real. The individual was probably male. He was probably 16 to 18 years of age. We can see on the ends of the bone, it was probably a mechanical saw that cut it off. I said, but it doesn't mean he's dead. So if I was you, I'd go house to house around the region and find somebody with a missing finger, which of course they did. And the whole story unfolded. So there was no crime. People are bonkers, absolutely bonkers. You know, she wanted a diamond, he gave her the finger, as it were. I cannot believe the girlfriend threw the key ring away, Nicola. <laughs> to be honest, like, it, first thing I would have done, jettison it straight off. I don't, I don't want anywhere near me. It was so revolting. I mean, the things that people do. And again, this is one of those scenarios where you just kind of, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And, and I think that you have to, in that kind of career, you have to have that open mind for what the possibilities could be. Now, the lectures that Sue will be giving, they're family friendly. So I'm sure she's done a sort of PG rated version of, of some of the things we've been hearing today. But some of it is quite horrendous and upsetting and distressing. And I wonder whether that's ever affected her. The way she talks about it, it's almost a bit blasé. Well, yeah, I mean, I think obviously a large part of the research is about understanding the human body and how you can read it to understand sort of the story of the person of the person themselves, you know, where they lived or the experiences they might have had. And through that kind of pinpoint whose body perhaps it is or or other details. And that's, you know, that's a, a really important task. But clearly there have been situations like, you know, the example in Kosovo or, you know, dealing with murder victims and so on. These are very distressing situations. And whilst it's important to have a firewall, a sort of mental firewall, to be able to separate, you know, your, your, your work from your personal life, clearly nobody's firewall is impermeable. And so I did ask, I asked Sue about that. I wondered how the things that she has seen and the work that she has done, how has that affected her? One thing I wanted, did want to pick up on was the kind of the impact that's had on you as a person. You seem to be able to detach yourself in a very remarkable fashion. But I did notice that you had body match your your daughters and you wouldn't let them have braces. Can you just talk to me about that? that <laughs> it's from your, from your experience. Dreadful mother, yes. So, you know, being in disaster victim identification, there is always the possibility that something is going to happen, always. And I've seen how difficult it can be sometimes to repatriate bodies to families because we just can't be certain of identity. So I've always thought, what, why risk it? And so my daughters, God bless them, you know, we, we have little pinprick blood samples, we have fingerprints, we have toe prints. I know where all their birthmarks are. And actually, I'm their mother, you know, I bathe them often enough and put their nappies on, which of course just embarrasses the daylights out of them now because they're grown women. And was it true about the braces? Yeah, absolutely. But then my, my daughter overruled me and said, Mom, my teeth are too squid. So one daughter had braces, the other two didn't. Because if you put braces on, you get this wonderfully even sort of Hollywood mouth. And part of what's identifiable for, about you is the crookedness 
of yeah. your teeth. So I'd much rather that your mouth looked like a robbed graveyard than it does, you know, look like Tom Cruise, quite frankly. That makes you feel better. My bottom teeth are very wonky. So I feel Perfect. like there's a benefit to Celebrate it. Celebrate it. And the other thing I've always said is, you know, tattoo yourself, pierce yourself, make yourself individualistic. And so what do you want people to take away from, from the Christmas lectures? Is it just an appreciation of what physically your body can tell you about you as an individual? Or is it more about how we think of our identity? Or what, what do you want people to take away from that? It's all of that. So I want, I want them to go away thinking about themselves. I want them to think about all the things that they do in life that impact upon themselves that somebody like me somewhere in the future may be looking for. You know, what is it that's different about you? So understanding your own form and being fascinated by what's not only on the outside, but what's on the inside. Thank you so much to both Nicola Davis and Professor Dame Sue Black. The first of her lectures is already available on BBC iPlayer and the next two are tonight and tomorrow on BBC4 at 8pm. Now, before you go, it's that time of year when I tell you about The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal. As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the poverty line in the UK, families across the country are facing a bleak Christmas period. Join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All your donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality, supporting those who have been hit the hardest. Donate at theguardian.com forward slash charity appeal 2022. That's theguardian.com forward slash charity appeal 2022. And we put a link to that on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finlay. The sound design was by Tony Onuchuku. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.